Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, energy and the environment. And Richard, one of the big moves out of the Trump administration recently was you had the president signing this sweeping executive order on a number of energy and environmental issues. The part of it that has received the most attention is his ordering the EPA to study the clean power plan that was initiated under President Obama, uh, which is presumably the opening salvo and eventually killing this thing or at least defanging it. The clean power plan was the Obama administration's effort to cut down on greenhouse gas emissions in the electric power sector. Uh, Richard, was President Trump right to be skeptical of it? Well, anytime you're dealing with emissions from coal, you have to take the problem very seriously. But this is a problem having to do with means as well as ends. Uh, Trump, I think, has always been of the position, not that he's very subtle about it, uh, that pollution is a bad thing and governments ought to do something to stop it. But the means, I think, is something that you have to do. And uh, as a particular matter, it seems pretty clear that the statutory provisions under which the Obama administration relied are not equal to the task of what they're trying to do. What they do is they provide for something known as best systems of emissions control um, or emissions restraint. And you know what that means is if you have a plant, we could tell you what kinds of filters you have to put on it in order to keep it in compliance. What the Obama administration said was look to you states. We're not just interested in this plant. We're interested in all the possible sources of energy. And unless and until you decide to make a situation in which you have accommodations, not only how the plant is outfitted, but also for dealing with solar energy and other kinds of energy sources, we're not going to find you in compliance. So we will put a FIP, that is a federal implementation plan, on top of you, which will be extremely onerous and that you can't live with. So it's an effort essentially to abuse the centralized authority to get the states to do something which the EPA does not allow them to do. And the we should – oh, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, and the second difficulty with this is they give themselves an enormous amount of discretion, not as to the amount of pollution that ought to come out in aggregate, but whether you go after this state or that state and for how much, because they reserve themselves the right to give quotas. And surprise of all surprises, red states would come out much worse under this than certain blue states. So between these two features, it's a very bad plan, and that what you really need to do is to go back to the drawing boards and start over and think of a better way in which you could control pollution uh, from coal, which is still a serious problem. And what you'd like to do is to substitute in clean for dirty coal and other forms of energy that are even cleaner than clean coal for that, most typically natural gas. I should mention here because I neglected to in that opening that, of course, the Clean Power Plan, this was a unilateral action from the Obama administration. This was sort of the second best alternative after the cap and trade bill failed mm -hmm. uh, on Capitol Hill. So let me take you back there for a moment. You just mentioned coal. Throughout his campaign and the early days of his presidency, President Trump spent a lot of time talking about coal and specifically putting coal miners back to work. He struck a similar note here when he was signing this executive order. How much stock should we put in that promise that this is going to be a boon for coal miners around the country? 
I think that ship has already sailed. Um, if you go look at a map and see where the plants have closed down, generally speaking, it's a benevolent distribution. The dirtiest coal in the United States is located in West Virginia and Ohio, and that's where most of the coals closings have taken place. Relatively little has changed in Colorado and in the western states where they have clean, low-sulfur coal. If you're going to try and put this stuff back together again, you're going to have to open up these mines and you have to find a way to sell this coal to somebody when most of the end users are very reluctant inside the United States to take coal that that's dirty. Uh, so it's just not going to happen. Um, can these workers be repositioned so they can do something else? The answer is some yes, most no. Uh, the industry that is growing, at least until recently, has been the fracking industry. But there's nothing which says that because you know how to mine coal, you know how to deal with oil. And so my guess is there'll be a net gain in employment in the energy sector, uh, but it won't happen that way. Now, there are other ways to increase employment and energy, which Obama wants to do, and namely to try to increase the number of people who are working with wind and solar, which is a big priority in California. But what happens is, if you know the only reason why you're getting the jobs is that somebody subsidized a form of energy which is not that efficient on a whole variety of dimensions, then you should look at the extra jobs as a bad thing rather than a good thing. Think of it as padding rather than as sort of genuine production. And we do know, for example, that the major problem with wind and solar is that it's not storable. And we know that each of these two forms of energy have other difficulties. You send these whirring you know, uh, windmills going around they admit low level of velocities and noises and so forth that distract people. They kill birds. They disfigure the landscape. If it weren't for this cause, they would all be an environmental menace. And when you put huge numbers of solar panels down on the earth, you distort everything that's underneath it and around it. So the idea that somehow or other these things are pollution-free only takes so if you just choose to ignore the kinds of subtle pollution that they create. And what a balanced energy policy would want to do is to figure out what these things are. If the levels are unacceptable, stop them and lower them. If they're not unacceptable, then what you do is you tax them in order to control them. And if you did that on a kind of a neutral basis, my guess is that at least in the current mix is that natural gas would come out dominant, coal would come out second, and solar and wind energy would probably come out at the bottom of the pile. You simply cannot get enough storage out of them to make them particularly valuable. It would be nice if we could add nuclear power back into the mix, but our last new plant was commissioned around 1977. Uh, this entire fleet is much too old, and it's a travesty of American policy over the last 40 years that we made the construction of new nuclear plants almost impossible. The French rely on nuclear power for most of their stationary energy sources, and the amount of carbon dioxide and schmutz that they admit for unit of productive labor is lower than in the United States, where we don't have the nuclear option in the mix. Can you talk for just a moment about why that is? I'm not talking so much about cultural causes, other that would be interesting too. But what are the specific sort of regulatory barriers that prevent more adoption of nuclear energy? Well, I mean, there are many manifold. Uh, the key development started to take place in the 1970s. And the question was, what kind of advance approvals did you have to get? And there were two sources of resistance. Some were inside the nuclear power agencies. They became sort of skeptical about that. And they start demanding all sorts of very detailed and expensive plans and precautions. But then there was a statute known as NEPA, in which what you have to do is a national environmental um, 
uh, Protection Act, or, or I think that's the name. But what it does is it requires that you publish all sorts of stuff. And then when you got to the court that supervised all of this, which is the court for the District of Columbia, there were four very willful and very smart liberal judges, um, all gone now, Carl McGowan, um, David Bazelon, Harold Leventhal, and Skelly Wright. And they just kept on piling requirement upon requirement upon requirement on top of the process, slowing it down to the point where nothing could get done. And there was just enough skepticism after Three Mile Island in 1978, which went off during a safety thing, that it created a popular sentiment going against nuclear power as well. Uh, so uh, that particular set of incidents essentially drove us from the nuclear power. American companies that retained expertise tended to do so overseas, and we have never put up a new plant. The French system is clearly the best on this. You design an all-purpose plant, and you sort of approve that generally, and then you tweak it here, there, and the other places. You put it in particular locations. The American style is to try to design every plant from scratch, which could add years to the process. Richard, there's been a lot of agony, especially from the left, over what these initiatives from the Trump administration are going to mean for the future of climate change. And the people who are a little less alarmed by it have largely taken the position that in the popular press especially, the concerns about climate change can border on hysterical. Where, where do you come down on that question? Well, I think hysteria is closer to the truth than the other side. Look, this is a very complicated question, and anyone who says he has perfect knowledge of the future or that the silent science is completely settled is being wildly over-optimistic. What we do know is that the central inquiry in all of these particular cases is what is the rate of change in temperature, if any, associated with changes in the level of carbon dioxide. And when you started to do the early assessments a decade ago, these estimates tended to run high. And they ran high uh, in the simple observational sense. What they would do is they would pre basically predict changes to where we are today that are twice that those that have been observed in the last 25 or 30 years. So you know there's something wrong with this because the numbers don't match. And a man named John Christie basically gave you a couple of lines, one the observed data and the other turns out to be the predicted lines, and you could see that they diverge. Uh, the question then is why? And there seem to be a very strong set of reasons. Uh, the question of how much the change in carbon dioxide does with respect to the change of temperature is mediated by a kind of a, a sensitivity coefficient. So what you do is you first take the logarithm of the change, and then you multiply it by this coefficient. Ten years ago, the estimates were in the neighborhood of 1.5 to 3.5, a very broad range. All of the recent work seems to suggest that the numbers around 0.1 or the 1.0 or 0.8, much lower. And that is perfectly consistent with the lower data that we've observed. The second problem that I think the folks have had with respect to climate change is there's a lot of uneasiness about the data that has been collected and thoughts that it's been politically motivated. This goes back a long time on the question of how it is that you manage to collect temperature data from the ocean and from the air as you go, what kind of mechanisms you use to connect it and so forth. But most recently, uh, there was a report by a man named Bates who worked in the National Oceanographic and Aeronautical Administration who said that in the run-up to the uh, Paris talks, the uh, 
people inside the Obama administration started to fudge the data, put out stuff prior to the time where it had been fully vetted and checked, and that the estimates were running high and were done so for political reasons. You know, I'm not a professor of facts. I know the man who did this is perfectly reputable. The Republicans are obviously going to seize on it. Uh, But when you hear talk like that coming out, it obviously dents the order a little bit on the part of people as to what you should do. And so then what is the correct answer to this thing? Well, in my view, uh, what you have to do with carbon dioxide is to get some sense not only of the temperature change, but also of what you think to be the effect of an increase in temperature. Uh, There is a measure that is commonly put out there called the social cost of carbon, which tries to figure out how much each additional ton of carbon dioxide in the current state of affairs adds to this sort of long-term social decline with respect to the planet. Uh, At Hoover Institution, Jim Baker and George Schultz used a $40 a ton estimate. Uh, But if you look at some of the more recent studies on global greening as opposed to global warming, the results are simply astonishing. Uh, They suggest that over the last 30 years, we've managed to add about 11% of the surface of the earth. That's both marine becoming greener and land becoming greener um, in virtue of the increased concentrations of carbon dioxide. And the best estimates are is that greenery is more responsive to increases in carbon dioxide than temperature changes. So there are some people, myself, included who say, you know, maybe the social cost of carbon is not negative. It's positive because of all the benefits that it's doing. And if you change the sign of that particular variable, then at least in the short run, the last thing you want to do is to impose these elaborate taxes on carbon dioxide production, which will in effect shut down something that you would like to see happen. A third thing that comes back in is that everybody now understands there's no simple way of dealing with this. Carbon dioxide comes from just about every conceivable source that you could possibly imagine. Every time you exhale, you do it. Much of the stuff is done overseas. The United States is already relatively efficient in a carbon dioxide sense, certainly compared to India and China. And the last thing we have to do is to figure out how to make our sources more efficient, which is going to be hard to do when some very elementary precautions by either China or India uh, would change the landscape, and most especially with respect to dirty coal, but perhaps also with carbon dioxide. Their output per unit of carbon dioxide is much lower than ours. My guess is even if you adjust for the kinds of industries they have. So you put all this stuff together. You don't see this as a world-class emergency. If you went to listen to Al Gore, who manages to have every prediction wrong in 2006, and then sort of announces in 2016 that he's right after all, what you do is you're watching a demagogue in action. He doesn't know the science, and what he does is he takes every adverse event and manages to attribute it to global warming instead of looking for all sorts of other explanations. One final energy issue that's now starting to attract some attention hasn't been quite as front burner as the other things that we've been talking about so far. It looks like the Trump administration is probably going to look at rolling back the CAFE standards that were adopted by the Obama administration. These are the regulations that mandate certain fuel efficiency standards across vehicle fleets for automakers. Mm. Is that a policy worth revisiting? Oh, God, yes. The the CAFE standards are one of the great scandals. It stands for Corporate Average Fuel Economy. And the problem with this begins with the fact that you do it by the fleet. Uh, the correct way to do pollution measurements in all cases is to figure out the amount of adverse pollution and then to put either a tax on it on the one hand or a limit on the amount that could come out on the other. There's no reason why you have to do this by a fleet. So uh, to put it in the following way, suppose you have a company which is very good at making high pollutant big kinds of vehicles that 
do a lot of pollution. Under the current law, what they have to do is to get into business and make small cars at which they have no expertise and then start to sell those things at a loss in order to meet their average fuel economy. The correct thing to do is to say, you guys specialize in big cars. Other guys specialize in little cars if they want to. And we'll get a pollution tax, which is appropriate. And then there'll be higher assessments on one than the other. You've got to figure out what the appropriate level of this tax is going to be. And for coal derivatives and so forth, that number is probably fairly high, even if it's low with respect to carbon dioxide. But it's a much better way of doing things. What Mr. Pruitt has to do and what the administration has to do is to get away from this situation where you're doing the kinds of things we do, like trying to find out best standards for emission reduction. We don't know what those are. Or cafe fleets. What you want to do is to use output measures and give no excuses. So if people, in effect, put a lot of dirt out into the environment, they pay a lot and they can be enjoined and they can be fine. But the last thing you want to do is to let the outputs run free while you try to regulate the inputs, which is the way the environmental laws have worked since the 1970s. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.